Welcome, welcome. Once again, it's another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Marcus Papp and Reggie Rizzo coming at you on today's episode. An escaped UK monkey brought home thanks to peanuts and Yorkshire pudding. Are bugs really attracted to light at night? Well, the evidence would suggest obviously yes, but we'll bring you some more details on that. And on this day in history, a major 19th century war comes to an end. That's coming up on Cool Stuff Ride Home. Per a Sky News report, a Japanese macaque, affectionately known as King Osi Kong, made a break from its enclosure at Highland Wildlife Park in the UK a little over a week ago. The park is located near King Osi, Scotland, and thus the clever nickname. A search operation was launched, and Honshu, that's his real name, was eventually captured on Thursday after being spotted eating from a bird feeder in a garden less than two miles from the park. It's believed he might have been enticed by some Yorkshire pudding left out overnight for the birds. Stephanie Bunyan, the person who alerted authorities to Honshu's presence in her yard, well, she told The Guardian that in addition to the peanuts in her bird feeders, she had also left out the aforementioned Yorkshire pudding, which was gone by the morning. The Royal Zoological Society of Scotland runs the park where Honshu resides. The society's chief executive, David Field, said, quote, Honshu has been carefully monitored by our vets and keepers and is doing really well. He doesn't seem to have lost any weight and has apparently consumed quite a lot of peanuts during the past five days, end quote. After being caught, the monkey was returned to the park and checked over by experts and will now be gradually reintroduced to his group. Perfield, quote, we want to say a huge thank you to the local community for their patience and cooperation throughout the past week, as well as our amazing staff at the park for their professionalism, patience, and diligence, end quote. Prior to being captured, Honshu had been spotted a few times about town. Carl Nagel spotted the monkey the day he escaped, but said the animal disappeared into the trees before the keepers he had alerted arrived. Local residents were urged to hide their outdoor food waste bins and bird feeders in an effort to encourage the monkey to head home. A drone was also used in the search, and experts were able to follow Honshu for 45 minutes on Tuesday using the device, though they were not able to retrieve him that day. Pesky little guy. The Japanese macaque is also known as the snow monkey because some live in areas where snow covers the ground for months of the year. No other non-human primate lives further north, nor in a colder climate. So, Reggie, what would your first reaction be if you looked in your backyard and there was the old Japanese macaque hanging out eating from your bird feeder, if you have one? My first thought would be, I need to clean my windows because my reflection looks poor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is that really what I look like? Uh, <laughs> I, I honestly think I would question whether or not I should go try to approach it. I mean, I think in the end, I hopefully intelligence would prevail and it, you'd say, no, don't do that. It'll probably eat your face off or not exactly. be happy to see you. <laughs> I feel like I've seen or heard too many horror stories that a monkey's going to eat your face off. I don't know where I've heard those before, <laughs> but I feel like I've heard that. So I would probably call the police. I'd probably show my kids. Well, you know what? I probably wouldn't because my son would want to go out and catch it and be like, no, we're not catching the monkey. <laughs> well, now I want to do some more research to find out, you know, are, are snow monkeys, uh, do they tend to be aggressive or not? I would assume that even if they're not notoriously aggressive creatures, they're not, you know, it's not, you don't want to approach one in public like that, especially one that's probably a little bit frightened being away from home at that point. Definitely don't approach it covered in peanut butter or pudding because <laughs> that might lead to trouble. <laughs> Why on earth would you be covered in pudding? Trying to make friends any way I can, Marcus. <laughs> uh, 
for, for whatever it's worth, and I mean, this is this is probably dangerous of me just doing an internet search while we're recording the show, but Japanese macaques uh, are not typically dangerous to humans. However, they are known to be bold and curious animals. They may approach people in search of food or out of curiosity. So again, that's not advice. Don't take that as such, but <laughs> it doesn't sound like they're uh, all that aggressive. So you know what? Maybe I would go say hey to the snow monkey after doing a quick Google search and see if he wanted, you know, some, some more peanuts or some peanut butter. I do have to say the chances of that happening to anybody listening are probably pretty slim. Well, it depends where you live. If you're in Costa Rica, you probably see monkeys all the time. True, true. But the, not the, the Japanese, Japanese attack, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> We've all heard or used the saying, like a moth to a flame. Assuming that bugs are attracted to light at night, well, that may not actually be 100% true. Instead of being drawn to the light, researchers now believe that fake light at night may actually be scrambling insects' innate navigational systems and are instead flying around in confusion. Tyson Hedrick, a biologist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who was not involved in this research, did point out that, quote, insects have a navigational problem. They're accustomed to light as a cue to know which way is up, end quote. So what does that mean? Insects aren't flying directly to the light source. Instead, they're actually tilting their backs toward the light. Basically, before there was artificial light, the strongest light source was the sky, while the ground to them was dark. So the bugs are confused, not really attracted to the light. They're seeing the light more as like the nighttime sky. For this study, they used tiny sensors on moths and dragonflies to capture their flight patterns. The idea is to have a motion capture similar to how actors put sensors on their bodies and face to track their movements for the CGI they do in movies. They also included high resolution cameras to film the bugs as they fly around lights in Costa Rica. They had a, a field light system set up so the bugs could fly around and they could kind of film that and see what's going on. Of course, you would reference Costa Rica. That's our second Costa Rica reference now <laughs> in this podcast. It's the theme of the day. Maybe we I should have a theme of the no day. no idea you were going to go there either. <laughs> Using these methods, they discovered that dragonflies would circle the lights by positioning their backs to the beams of lights. For lights that came out of the ground, like searchlights, some of the insects would end up flying upside down and crashing as they tried to keep their back to the light. The bugs in the study had the least amount of disruption while flying when the lights were shining straight down on them. The study did find that some insects were affected less by fake light sources. Uh, vinegar flies and oleander hawk moths were able to fly without any issues when the light was shining up, but they aren't sure why. In the field lights they set up, hawk moths were still likely to be kind of entrapped in the light source unless they were foraging. Then they were able just to ignore the artificial light. So this study kind of points to the fact that, yes, they're attracted to it in a way, but not for the reasons you think. They're actually just confused on their navigation as they're flying around. Yeah, that's interesting. I never heard anything like that prior to you just come to assume growing up hey look look at all the bugs near the light they must love it up there maybe it's the warmth or uh you know you could speculate a lot of different ways so to find that out yeah that is kind of interesting question to you what the heck is a vinegar fly and an oleander hawk moth look it up <laughs> <laughs> do i have to do all the research for you 
<laughs> Could you do some? <laughs> okay. Vinegar flies are a type of fly that are often confused with fruit flies. They lay eggs in damaged or rotting fruit that would not be harvested or eaten. The adult vinegar fly is between two and a half and four millimeters in length. Oh, it can be geez. either brown, yellow, brown, or black. There. Does that, that answer your question? Just pull that right out of the sky, did you? That, that <laughs> just knowledge right up out there of the, in the sky. old noggin. Yeah, that that two point five seconds that you that you <laughs> delayed there maybe gave you enough time to get to the old Google. <laughs> no, no, I had that uh, chip that you talked about uh, the other day. I had that implanted in my brain, so now I know everything. <laughs> How about the, the oleander hawk moth, Reggie? That's a good question, Marcus. I know, I know <laughs> the only type of question I ask. Okay, so the oleander hawk moth is a very large moth. Its wingspan is around four to five inches. Uh, which, you know, obviously is bigger than your average normal moth. Uh, they come in a lot of different color patterns. can be a shade of light blue, orange, white. Uh, and they have, a, as they quote here in this, I'm looking up, a memorizing display of colors. And the patterns are uh, also kind of uh, aesthetically appealing and can provide camouflage as well. So it's just, you know, a, a bigger moth. I'm going to go with that. Uh, you can usually <laughs> find them in Africa, Middle East, Southern Europe. Well, from what I'm seeing, they're also found in Hawaii at times, but... Uh... Uh, they prefer tropical climate, so that makes sense. <laughs> You're going to go with that. I love, I love That's that. That's what answer. it says. I, I'm reading it. It says they prefer <laughs> tropical climates. Well, fair enough. The uh, oleander hawk moth, not quite as phased by the light as uh, the other insects were. So, uh, good stuff, Red. On February 6, 1899, the Spanish-American War finally ends as a peace treaty was ratified by the Senate as we take a look at this day in history. So taking a look back at Cuba, or Cuba, however you want to say it there, when Christopher Columbus landed there in 1492, he wrote in his diary, the Cuban people, quote, brought us parrots and balls of cotton and spears and many other things, which they exchanged for glass beads and hawks bells. They willingly traded everything they owned. They do not bear arms and do not know them, for I showed them my sword. They took it by the edge and cut themselves out of ignorance. They have no iron. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want, end quote. Not the uh, most generous quotes out there. Wow. Uh, but yeah. those. Uh, now you see why people don't like Christopher Columbus. Wow. Those statements essentially became the policy for Spain for hundreds of years. In 1868, a rebellion erupted into what became known as the Ten Years War that resulted in 200,000 Spanish casualties. In 1892, the Cuban Revolutionary Party was formed with the goal of gaining their independence. The Spanish instead suppressed the people in fortified towns. 400,000 Cubans died of starvation and disease. The U.S. sent the USS Maine to, quote, protect American interests. But after a few days at port in Havana, the battleship was ripped apart by an explosion, killing about 250 men. It was assumed that a Spanish mine caused the destruction. As the headlines came out after the attack, uh, public war chants in the U.S. came out like, remember the Maine, to hell with Spain, which I have to say is a catchy uh, war cry if you're going to have one out there. <laughs> it was on April 24th, 1898, when Spain declared war on the U.S. The next day, the U.S. declared war on Spain. It lasted 10 weeks as the U.S. forces were far too superior for Spain. Probably the most famous encounter came on July 1st when Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, you know, the same Teddy Roosevelt who became the U.S. president in 1901, led the first United States Volunteer Cavalry known as the Rough Riders. Uh, it was a battle in San Juan Hill. He went into battle carrying a pistol recovered from the Maine. Task and Purpose, a military veteran-focused website, reports, quote, 
It was a bloody struggle to gain the high ground above enemy naval concentrations in the harbor of nearby Santiago de Cuba. The action cost the U.S. over 1,000 soldiers, nearly five times as many as the Spanish. But despite the grave loss of life, Roosevelt overtook the enemy position and carried the day, end quote. Two days later, the Spanish fleet was just destroyed at the Battle of Santiago de Cuba, leading to the surrender of the city. As part of the peace treaty, the Treaty of Paris, Spade ceded Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Guam to the U.S. for $20 million, and Cuba was under the protection of the United States. So a little bit of history there. Were you very familiar with uh, the Spanish-American War? No, I, I can't say that I was or am. Uh, I, I say that you know somewhat embarrassingly, that, that I don't know or didn't know a little bit more about that, but... That's certainly, yeah, an interesting a bit of history to go back and, and hear about here. I remember briefly going over Spanish-American War in history class, but it was one of, you know, there's so many wars to go over that it was kind of skimmed, you know, it's just like, hey, it happened, right. here it is. And I, I obviously know of the Rough Riders and uh, Teddy Roosevelt. I've heard of them before. I was unaware that he carried a pistol that was from the sunken ship to battle. I did not know that. Yeah, right there with you. And, and I, too, had heard of the, the Rough Riders, of course. Uh, but uh, you know what struck me in that last part of what you read there, Reggie, that Cuba came under the protection of the United States. It just goes to show you how circumstances uh, are ever evolving in the world. <laughs> when, yeah, uh, you know, it, of course, a short while later, it's uh, the two countries are heavily at odds. And then, you know, now we're back to yeah. somewhat uh, more, whatever you want to call it, respectable relations. Pretty wild. It only took a few years. Cuba gained independence from the U.S. in 1902, fell to the communists in 1959 in the Cuban Revolution. It hit international headlines when Pre President John F. Kennedy, of course, faced down uh, the Soviets with the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. So uh, a lot of U.S. history happening there in Cuba. Thanks for joining us on another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. If you have any questions, comments, you can reach us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. He's Marcus Paff. I'm Reggie Brizou. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Oh,